Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 75th episode of the Tuesday Night Podcast. A podcast. Damn, 75. 7, 75. A podcast about our experience with board games and other games in the genre of, of boardiness. Uh, I'm your host, Ooh. SPJ. <laughs> Rough slogan. <laughs> and uh, Sean is back, as always. Hey, how's it going, everybody? Good, good, good. We got your... We, finally, after four weeks, maybe three weeks, I can't do math right now, Alan has returned. Hey, random fact about me, number 21. I've broken my nose several times. I think three or four times, to be exact. Playing board games? <laughs> Eating butt. You got it. They really chuck those dice hard, and sometimes they rebound. Nope, baseball bat to the face every time. Uh, no Logan with us this week, but... Uh, we still got what? no no Logan. We haven't we haven't graduated to like the four people on the show yet. So somebody so had somebody had make the cut, and that was Logan. More like Nogan. Yep. We got a couple games to talk about this show. I played World Championship Russian Roulette. Sean has played Thunder something. I don't mm-hmm. know yep. what he was saying. It's a great game, Thunder something. <laughs> Thunder something. It's a world class hit. Alan has played a list, so we're going to talk about some games, and then I have. An email specifically for both Sean and Alan that we'll address here at the end of the show. Oh, but I haven't received my copy of World Championship Rush Roulette yet. Hey, SBJ's I just filled out my survey for two rooms and a boom. Why isn't it showing up yet? <laughs> I think that'd be funny if we just read customer service emails off as opposed to podcast emails. The funny thing is, a response is usually you mean from like. Three years ago, we'll get right on it. No problem. We'll hop on it, yeah. Do you still... No, serious question. Do you still have people, like, completing your tours yes. and a survey? Yes. Yeah. Is there a cutoff where you're just like, hey, we fulfilled these a long time ago. Where were you? Or are you still in the camp the hard- of, we have to honor everything, even if it's five years later? The hard part would be, we, if it got far enough along, I'd want to track down and make sure we didn't send them one. Because you sort of lose track of all that stuff, right? And it becomes harder and harder to search for it in Amazon. Um, we would, I would honor it for pretty much forever. Unless we, like, stop printing the game. Um, at that point, I would say, like, sorry, no, that game's out of print. Go fuck Someone yourself. Someone paid for the game. Yeah, we want them to have the game. Just yeah, the right absolutely. I take it as a compliment that they came to Kickstarter specifically to back our game and basically aren't on Kickstarter ever other than that. That, like, they got, they totally forgot about Kickstarter, whatever that was. Because that's usually what happens. It's a really good point. Yeah. They came back just like, oh, whatever happened to Two Rooms and a Boom? Whatever happened to this game I backed decades ago? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Hope, I hope they made that. <laughs> uh, speaking of games you've made on Kickstarter, uh, you guys made World Championship Russian Roulette. I played it. So, a little bit of background. About me, obviously not involved in that project, but I originally played it at Gen Con, I think about a year before the Kickstarter went up, you guys were still using the the print and play stuff where like the ink kind of got on your hands. I don't know if you... I was a game crafter prototype, yeah. Yeah. So I played it there once, uh, really liked it. I was a big, f- coming from a, a fan of bluffing games, like I really like Coup and Skull and, and stuff like that. So it was really in my wheelhouse. Before I explain... The game I I played, well, game of World Championship Russian Roulette I played. How how is the overall Kickstarter 
going? I'm, I'm assuming all rewards are out. Last time we talked, I think you were sending out international. Is that all still going smooth with Amazon and having copies and stuff? U.S. copies have been fine. International hit a bunch of hiccups with customs, and then we had to correct an invoice, and that took some time. But they've all started shipping, and they should all be shipped out at the latest uh, by this coming Wednesday. Uh, so we're recording on a Saturday right now. So it'll be the day after this podcast is released. All international shipments should have been shipped out. Then after that, we're shipping out all pre-orders. I'll pretty much start shipping those out uh, Wednesday unless something else happens. I always feel bad pre-orders get bumped back and back and back, but we really just don't want it to be a situation where, you know, somebody who pre-ordered the game six months after the Kickstarter gets it before somebody who kickstarted the game. Even if that means some people waiting a little bit longer you know, it's important for us to honor those Kickstarter backer commitments. Is this going to be a situation where the Kickstarter ends and we and people who didn't back the Kickstarter or didn't pre-order, they have to wait like a year to get copies? Because I know Two Rooms and a Boom was sold out for several months. Or like, how does how does somebody who who missed both Kickstarter, both pre-order, how do they get a copy at this point? It'll be at Amazon. As soon as pre-order customers start getting theirs, boom, it'll be on Amazon. So that'll be how, uh, if we get great reviews, you know, it'll sell out quick, but we're, we have a better pipeline to get it reprinted quickly. So that's exciting, but yeah, it'll be on Amazon. We're pumped. I'm pumped to see it released. Are you Alan? Ah, so pumped. <laughs> <laughs> well, I played world championship Russian roulette at PAX. I actually brought it with me. I brought, uh, I brought that and a couple other games like cheaty mages and stuff. Just not mm, huge nice games. Choice. Yeah, Cheat Mages is great. Uh, not good. huge games that fit into a suitcase, but I brought both of those. And I played with Irene, my girlfriend, and I played with the B-team's finest, Will. And then I played with my other friend, Travis. And that was his... That was Travis's first time ever hearing of the game and playing it. Uh, I believe Irene and Will also played at Gen Con with me originally. Wait, Will Have had I, never even heard of the game? No, no, my friend Travis. Okay. Oh, Travis. Oh, sweet. Okay, cool. This yeah. isn't the same page. Is Travis the one who did the illustrations for um, Cause of Death Ghost? Or I no, that was Micah. No, that's Micah. Travis yeah. is Micah. the one that is on Logan's podcast with the Dungeons and Dragons Totally Random. And he's also on your podcast a lot. It's super effective. Yes. And also previously known as Dungeons and Dragonites, but now known as Mythical. Mythical. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so I don't, don't, I don't know. Don't, don't care. Yeah, <laughs> screw it all. I don't get together with Travis often, but uh, he is a pretty big board gamer on on his own merit. I retained most of my rule information from two years ago, and I remembered most of the rules pretty well. Uh oh. I went through the rule book, and everything made sense. We we only made one mistake in our game, and I don't know if this is a common mistake. So I'm gonna I'm gonna lay it out here. So when somebody so so overall, the game went great. I, I think we, we were able to set it up, play it, and finish it in like a half hour, which is good. I think everyone did feel really good about the rules and playing and understanding the strategy pretty quickly. So that was all fantastic. Uh, the rule we got wrong, and we didn't realize until like two rounds left, was when somebody false called somebody. So, oh, I think you hid your bullet. Oh, you didn't. Okay, now I need to put an extra bullet in my chamber. We didn't know that the extra bullet in the chamber resets uh, after you kill yourself. Mm. Oh, so for, that'll make a real interesting game. <laughs> yeah. So for wow. like 
another round or so, uh, they had two bullets instead of one bullet. They just played that way, and and we cleared that up, and they removed the bullets. But that was the only rule we re- we really got wrong. Ooh, I'm assuming they didn't win. <laughs> uh no, they didn't. <laughs> yeah. Now, we usually don't have that issue because it's in the rules, and if you flip over your character cards, it tells you that right on the character cards when you flip them over. So yeah, we noticed, that we, dies. we noticed that after the fact that it said on the character card. I think it says something like clear all extra bullets or something. Something like that, yeah. No, it's, it's overall, it's a, it's a really easy game to teach, and it plays really fast. And it's kind of, I mean, we, I talked about Dragoon last week and how... Dragoon felt limiting in what you could do. Like you ha- you can do three actions a turn, but it never felt like it was enough to make progress. And I was thinking about that for two rooms or for World Championship. Really, you only have like one or two things you can do, right? You can hide your bullet or not hide your bullet, and then you you make a gamble, you make a bet on what you can do. But I still felt like thematically that fit, if that makes any sense. It makes sense. It depends on what phase you're doing. So there's, that's the whole element of elegance, having simple decisions. So each of those decisions have to have weight if your decisions are simple. So in the first phase with pocket, do you pocket a click card or do you cheat like a dirty son of a gun and pocket the bullet card? Then the bidding. So what are you going to bid on? And then do you challenge someone? Do you risk getting an extra bullet in your gun or do you get the three extra action cards. And then finally, when do you play action cards? So that's pretty much where the decisions come into play. And there's individual ones like peek the boo. When you get to peek into your gun to see where the bullet is, and then who do you choose so that they can see and one of their cards from their gun deck. So there's plenty of decisions galore, but each one of those decisions, there's only a few options. So yeah, I'm totally on board with everything you're saying. I had the like, the worst luck ever of you get four characters and I lost the first three rounds. So I lost three characters in three turns. Oh, it's a ooh, tough ooh, spot ooh. to be in. Because all I was betting was two the entire time. And my, my bullet was two all three times in a row. And I was like super bummed, right? Because like that's a, that's a low bet. That's a safe bet. A lot of people are betting two. But the cards you get in return for losing, like that's... I'm, that's the, the, the catch-up mechanic, right? Of like, okay, now I have these cards I can play. Absolutely. To stay in the game. And like, everyone kind of caught up with me in the, in the whole fact of like, okay, now they're, they're dying, right? But there still is, there was, there was at one point where I was on my last character and I bet two. I was safe for like the first time ever. And Irene was like, oh, I want you, I'll play this card and you have to keep flipping over, which meant I was like, okay, well, I'm going to die then. Hit me, baby, one more time. So there's like, there's still that little bit of, uh, I don't know, I don't want to use the term bullying, but like, if, it's very easy for somebody to gang up on a player, even though like in that situation, like you're kind of burning a card, right? Because everyone else has so many lives and I don't, but like in the situation, if you play that, you're going to eliminate me. Definitely. I mean, it's a game with player elimination. So yeah, there's definitely like screw your neighbor type mechanics because, um, you know, it's a winner take all last man standing kind of game. Right. It's kind of like Cosmic Encounter where traditionally that's saved for someone who's really winning. So just like in Cosmic Encounter, uh oh, all of a sudden we have to work together to make sure that one person doesn't run away with it. So let's use our action cards to prevent them from winning. So it definitely has that mechanic. <laughs> I have a pretty good 
World Championship Rush Roulette story, Solomon is amazing at the game. So who the poop is Solomon? Solomon was one of our booth volunteers, and so he was demoing uh, World Championship Rush Roulette for hours and hours and hours at Gen Con and even at Origins. And he really likes the game, but he loves it now that he owns it, as he claims, because he says... Normally, I let people win, and I make really dumb mistakes so people can take advantage of it, all in the spirit of them learning how to play the game. But now that I own the game, I get to finally unleash all this pent-up strategy and effort that I have been building up this entire time. And I have to admit, (laughs) he's insanely good at the game. It's frightful. And so I've stolen a lot of his strategy because his strategy was very similar to my strategy, but then I was surprised at some of the moves he did later on in the game. But he's also obviously a good bluffer and whatnot. Oh, man. So watch out for Solomon. He is volunteering for us again at Origins. So he's going to be back in the same seat of letting other people win. Probably just building <laughs> up his aggression once more. I don't know if I said it, but overall, I really liked World Championship Russian Roulette. And I, I think a big part of me enjoying a game after... Because I feel like a lot of people, or maybe just a lot of board gamers on Reddit that, or the internet that like to talk, I feel like a lot of them play a game once and then like never play it again, right? I have probably over 50 games on my shelf that I've only played once. Or I have like 20 games on my shelf that are still in the shrink wrap. I remember finishing games for the first time, whether that's like Comet or, or Power Grid or Seven Wonders. Immediately after finishing those games, like the first thing I like to do is go to Board Game Geek and look up frequently asked questions and look up rules and like make sure that did we play that right? Did that feel good? Is that if I teach if if we play it again, do we have to make any changes? Will those changes affect would those changes that I'm I'm looking up, would have they affect the current game that we played? Maybe that's just me where I, I I'm always like, oh man, did I play this right? Like is this as easy as it's going to be to get to the table again? That one rule that I got wrong, like, it was obvious after the fact of, oh, okay, like, it says here on page whatever in the rule book that you're supposed to remove it. Cool, we found that very quickly. We address- we fixed that rule as soon as we found it. Oh, okay, it says it on the player cards. We didn't notice that. But then, like, finishing the game and going, we played that right. Like, I don't, I don't have any other questions. I don't, I, I don't see a situation where it's like, Okay, let's check the rules, guys. Um, that feels really good, I think. Uh, and mm. I felt the same way with like the resistance or two rooms in a boom or Machi Koro, where like you finish the game and you're like, I can confidently teach. I can like confidently teach this. I don't have to keep going back to the rule book. I'm not going to play with somebody new, or hopefully I don't play with somebody new that asks this obscure question that is one not in the rule book. Like two, like okay, like you're not going to have fun because we we don't have a, a definite answer for you. Okay, everyone, wait 10 minutes for me to load up Board Game Geek on my iPhone, and it, it looks terrible on mobile, and, like, attempt to find this this obscure question. There's, like, so much value, I think, to, like, finishing a game and going, I have no questions about the rules, this feels really good, I and I feel confident teaching it in the future. Absolutely, yeah. I've been on a big, like, vintage board gaming binge recently, and one of the things I'm constantly impressed by... With some of these older games, not like the super heavy Avalon Hill ones, but I'm talking like Milton Bradley, Parker Brothers games, is they really get these games down to where, like, 
the rules are so easy to remember and they're so reinforced by the gameplay and they're naturally what you would think to do anyway. And I think that's really a sign of the fact that they were, I mean, that's mass market, right? This is before there was even a, like a hobby board gaming niche, right? And so that's something that we're, I think we're always trying to do is like, how can we get these rules to be simpler? How can we get it to where you're not having to look up something dumb, like, um, like constantly to where if, if referencing a rule is a part of the game enough to where you need to do it a lot, that needs to be part of the components. Like for us, like the challenge rules for World Championship Russian Roulette are something you would typically have to reference a lot. So we just put it on a card and made it a component of the game that you actually use. That way, it's not like something you're looking up all the time. It's right where you want it to be when you're using it. Does that make sense? Yeah. And like another, like a game I loved from Gen Con last year was Tada, and Tada's rulebook is is like a single pamphlet. Like you just open it up, it lists the rules. I think there's like 14 of them, but they're all like sentence fragments. They're not even like they're so easy to learn. And and I've I've showed that game to many people, and I've never had to look at the rulebook since since the initial playthrough. And then like on the opposite side of the coin, I remember like playing King of Tokyo, and I don't think there's a single I don't think there was a single game of King of Tokyo I played where I didn't check the rule book at least once and it was almost always because of uh one of the ability cards of like okay this ability card makes sense but now what happens if it's against this ability card like what comes first or what does what or what about this ability card and that's not to say that King of Tokyo is not not fine it's just I don't know it's just something about going back to the rule book is like ugh, okay this is yeah. You kind of want the rule book to be like one and done, right? Like you want to read it while like people are getting their drinks, and then put it aside and lose it forever, right? I remember not needing rule books all the time as a kid. Like, oh, we lost the rule book to Clue. Like, all right, whatever. You know, everybody knows how to play this game. You know, so yeah, I think that's a huge compliment that you got through. You know, your game of World Championship Rush Relent. Aside from that one rule, which I did look up, and it is on the component. It says, uh, "Reset your gun deck." is the is the final card text. But I think that's that's huge. I think that's really good because board games are about playing, right? Like if you like reading rule books, there's nothing wrong with that. That's why I play role playing games, right? Um I love reading the rules to a role playing game. But it's and it's and it's expected that you're going to have to reference stuff in books and tables and role playing games all the time, right? And that's why information design is so important in role playing games. But I think in board games we want all the action to be on the table, right? Yeah. Speaking of on the table, Alan, what have you what have you gotten to the table? Well, s- since last time I was on a crap ton, but I, if you want, I'll talk about since you mentioned Tada, which we have played, goes over like gangbusters. So simple, so funny, so memorable. Rolling the dice, have to do what you need to do an order and everyone has the same thing. Like everyone's curse. So it's like, you have to scream something every time you roll or you have to use one hand. It's amazing. Then I got voodoo by Mayfair games onto the table. I'm sorry. Mayday games, big difference there. Mayday <laughs> games, voodoo. And it has a very similar approach to it. In fact, on the very back of the box, it says roll dice, cast magic and win points. The difference is, not everyone's going at the same time. It's turn base. You get dice. You're rolling dice, hoping you get the right icons that are the ingredients for spells. And then when you cast a spell, you put the spell on someone specifically, and then they have to do something for the rest of the game unless 
they screw it up, then they basically lose points or something like that. We stopped playing it because when we were playing it pretty much 10 minutes in, we realized, you guys, who wants to stop playing this right now? And everyone raised their hand. And then I said, who here wants to play Tada instead? And everyone raised their hands. And now this may sound like I'm a shill for Stephen Avery because, yes, he is one of my best friends and I love his game design. But I think objectively, it'd be hard to find someone that would disagree with the following statement. When compared to Tada, Voodoo sucks! <laughs> Tada is just such a beautiful game, too. I think it's a classic, like, leave it on your shelf. Not like, don't play it, but like... Find the- it in your grandparents' basement. Yeah, it's just, it's got that timeless quality. The illustrations are beautiful. The components are beautiful. The box is beautiful. It's got that Rocky and Bullwinkle look that I love. I'm definitely getting sick of the font in the Voodoo logo. I'm seeing it everywhere um, because it comes from a website called Blambot. And it's, uh, you know, we've even used that same font. I feel like Wisdom Script is used everywhere. It's, It's just, you know, like it's a really good, like cool looking font for comic books that's for free on this website. Um, but you're seeing it pop up a lot in board games these days. I think Survive uses a very similar one, if not the exact oh, same one. Yeah, I just looked it up. Yeah, I know exactly what. Run, font. fight, or die used it as well. Run, fight, Eight or die used games. it. games. Yep. I'm just um typography nerd like that, where it's sort of like, all right, let's move on. Let's find some interesting stuff. Like, Tada is a super vintage looking, you know, just really classy looking font that probably nobody would think to use now, right? So, I mean, I don't know. Simon games, and I hate that they're going by Simon and not come on because I'm come on, Simon, come on, Simon, get it together. They're, I mean, they're just killing it in their art department. So, you know, no arguments there. What about tell me about Thunder something? Thunder something, Thunder Road, Woo! old school Milton Bradley game. basically like Mad Max. Uh, Each player has three cars of varying strengths and they have a chopper. And then you're driving down this desert highway. You've got these two boards that are puzzle, you know, puzzle connected. And whenever you get to the end of the one, you move the one from the back up in front so that the road keeps going. But everyone who's on that old board that got left behind, they're, (sighs) yeah, they're out of the game forever. They're, they're dusted. And it's just like a super quick winner take all last man standing kind of game, but I played it with seven-year-old niece multiple times and we had so much fun. And it's just one of these games where like theme is awesome. Mechanics are simple. It plays fast. The rules are easy. I never have to read a rule book ever again. And I'd literally, I'd play that game. I'm like working on wanting to like make role-playing game out of it. Like it's just such a fun little game. Alan's played it recently too. And I think we were both really blown away by it. Yeah. You know who showed that game to me? Stephen Avery. He yep. said, you want to play my favorite game from the 80s? I said, well, with that introduction, how could I say no? He pulls out Thunder Road little car minis. Each car is different, too. You got your small, medium, large. The large goes slow, but can do more damage. The small goes fast, but does shitty damage. It's amazing. They have such cool names, too. They have names like the Exterminator or the Doom Buggy. Like, just really cool stuff like that. 
but yeah, easily making its way into my top 10 favorite games where I'm always down to throw it on the table. It's so inoffensive in terms of like weight and time, kind of like Sushi Go or any of these other great filler games. I'm realizing that an, a huge component of board games that I really love are, and Alan's always been really good at this, it's hostability. But the other word, the other phrase I can think of for it is, how anxious is it going to make me pitching this game to other people, right? Like, pitching Deception, Murder, in Hong Kong is really easy f- for me to do. For some reason, pitching Secret Hitler is harder because of the, like, complicated, like, rules about, you know, you got to vote, and then we vote on a chancellor, and then you get these two things. It's just, even though it's still still a really simple game, I'm talking pitching to non-gamers or children or, you know, like, friends and family trying to get them into the hobby. Thunder Road is one of those games that's so easy. It's like, you guys want to play Mad Max for 15 minutes? It's... It's one of those games. Sushi goes the same way. It's like, oh, it's this cute little sushi card matching game. Are you and talking the- about teachability or are you talking about the hook? What kind of theme or one or two senses really gets someone moist and wanting to play the game? And obviously teachability is how easy is it to teach? So which of those are you referring? So I'm actually not referring to either of them individually. I'm grouping them together in thinking about when I say like, I want to play this game with people. How easy is it going to be to convince them from zero to playing the game that this is the game we should play? And sometimes that's teachability. Sometimes it's like, it's so easy to learn. Don't even worry about it. Like uh, Guillotine, which is not my favorite game by any means, but it's so easy to learn. It's like, we might as well play it. Right. And then some of the games, it's thematic, right? It's like, oh, you're, you're in Mad Max, you know, whatever. But it's, it's that zero to 60, like how quickly can we start playing this game based on how cool it sounds and how long it's going to be for me to teach them. Flamme Rouge is, is the same way where it's like, oh, it's, you know, bike racing. It's awesome, but it's strategic and cool, but it's also only going to take me five minutes to teach you guys. So I'm, I'm definitely combining them into one big thing where it's like, can I pitch this game and can I get them playing it quicker than I could even pitch a larger game or teach a larger game? When I was in Guatemala, everything you're saying is exactly why they loved You Mad Bro so much. Everyone couldn't get enough of You Mad Bro. Yeah, because it's a very easy game to pitch and it's even easier to teach. And particularly in a world where like the language gap is bigger, right? I could definitely see that being a game that does really well for like travelers. It fits in your pocket. It's really small and you could play it at a youth hostel or wherever you want to go and not have to explain that much, even though the theme is super weird. Like, oh, there's this monster who's washed up on shore. These guys are trying to impress girls. They're snapping tentacles off. Sometimes they go crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we are almost out of time here. So let me jump to our question real quick. Might be a long one, might be a short one. But Greg writes in and says, hey, guys, longtime listener, third or fourth time caller. I was hoping you should you could share some tips on teaching two rooms in a boom with a large group of non-gamers or gamers just getting into the hobby. I find myself at college once a month doing a game night through their library and two rooms in a boom has taken off in popularity and I find myself a little overwhelmed trying to teach the game to such a large group, 20 to 40 people. Any tips or tricks or advice for helping run the game smoothly is greatly appreciated. Thanks, Greg. Biggest tip I can tell you is be Alan Girding. <laughs> I would say the thank you, Sean, by the way. Let me <laughs> validate your compliment. So thank you. I would say when, when it comes to two rooms in a boom, 
One thing that people struggle with is they say, I'm confused, I'm confused, I'm confused. Nip that in the butt right away by telling people part of the game is being confused. Nobody knows everything. Everybody knows a little something. So the whole point of the game is be confused and talk to people to be that little less confused. So keep on talking. And that way you prep people to expect and be more comfortable with the confusion that comes in when first playing Two Rooms in a Boom. I think you can answer this too, SBJ, because you've played Two Rooms in a Boom plenty. Yeah, I have, and I, I, I've taught it to not, not as big as a group of 20 people, but probably 13 or 14, all of them being people who don't own board games, right? <laughs> I feel like you have, you have your board gamers, people who buy you know, a new board game every month, and then you have the, those, those family members or those friends who they'll play whatever you put in front of them, but they'll probably never, ever purchase their own board game. So I had a, a a handful of family members. They love playing anything. And then their friends were over and their friends are like, oh, the last game we've ever played was Monopoly, you know, a decade ago. So what I did that seemed to work pretty okay is I started the first game of just Red and Blue uh, and President Bomber. And then once they understood that, and I also made it a short game, like I didn't go the five rounds. I just... I think I just did three or four just absolutely necessary deliver those concepts of like, okay, we're trading people. Okay. Leader. Okay. You're either on a red team or a blue team, like very as, as simple as you can make two rooms in a boom. Uh, and then as once they all got that, I was like, okay, I'm going to introduce a little bit. I'm going to introduce some new roles. And then I think the, one of the first roles I introduced was spy, which was like, okay, still red team, blue team, except your card is just the opposite color. Uh, and you can use that to your advantage. And then it really snowballed after that of like, okay, that was great. That was 10, 12 minutes. Let's do another one. Okay, add more cards, add more cards. And so after the, like, the first two initial like playthroughs, it was mostly them saying like, oh, we want to see new roles because they saw how many roles there are, right? And, like It's very, very hard to miss how many cards are in that box. Keep them wanting more. One of the things I do at conventions, because I'm a super lazy GM, is um, if anyone has played it before, one or two people, I ask them to be in opposite rooms at the beginning of the game, and I try to get them to be leaders at the very beginning and have them explain leadership. But basically, part of it is you can go crazy running back and forth between rooms, um, and also you can lose players if you make your explanations too long. So Alan and I always explain leadership during the first round, not before the game. We just explain like the basics, what the point is, and we move on to the game. But having one or two helpers, even somebody who's just played the game one time before in different rooms, helping to explain what's going on and like, oh yeah, we're going to send one of you over, blah, blah, blah. That can be a huge, huge help in sort of the virality of having the players teach each other the game and not putting it all on one person. Obviously that first game, it's a little tougher, but you know, do... Vanilla rolls, three minute or three round game, that kind of thing. But as soon as you can, start nominating people to be your little helpers in the rooms, and that will really go over well in terms of just getting the game explained. Like, what are we doing? Who's this? Um, a lot more quickly. Totally agree, Sean. The quicker you get them in, the better. And I've even done it to the extreme where I said, all you really need to know right now is the three main rules. You got to take care of your card. You can do whatever you want with your card, but make sure you take care of it. Don't throw it away. Two, you can't leave your room unless you're one of the hostages. So just plan on not leaving your room. 
And three, you're not allowed to communicate with the other room. So no shouting across the room. And then with that in mind, people are like, all right, well, now what? And then everyone else kind of helps them. Like Sean said, especially if you have experienced players that you told ahead of time, hey, help these new people out. And the easiest like strategy tips to give people, which I didn't even realize until Alan explained it to me, is find people on your team. Make sure the leader is on your team. Hold the president bomber into the last round, no matter what side you're on. That's like the very basic strategy that like if you implement and you can implement before the other team can, you will win the game, right? But once you start adding in more complicated roles, it gets harder and harder to do that. But everyone should be able to understand like I'm red, find more red people, make sure the leader of your room is red, find the president of the bomber, keep them both in the same room, and then at the very last round, send one of them out or keep them both together. I do want to bring back up Alan's initial point because I think it's the best one that was said was the whole, like, people saying they're confused and, like, addressing, Boom, I win! And, and addressing <laughs> that right away because I, I feel like that is, that is the easiest way I feel like you lose somebody in any game where they go, I'm confused. You really have, like, one opportunity to, like, address that. Otherwise, they're not going to enjoy the rest of the game and they're probably going to check out. And usually for me, like in a heavier game, like uh, I played like that Mega Civ game a year and a half ago or whatever. And when they're explaining all the rules, I was like, man, this is confusing. And somebody was like, it's really easy when it's your turn. And that was like, oh, okay. Like if it gets to my turn and they're going to be like, move a guy, then like, oh, that's going to be very, very easy. They're just giving me all these situations. Like if your guy ends up here, he's going to die. And if he ends up here, he's going to live, blah, 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 blah. So in like heavier games, usually the thing that helps me worry about being confused is knowing like when it gets to your turn it'll be very very simple you know we're just giving you an overlay of the land but in a game like this saying it's going to be a little bit confusing that's part of the fun would also nip that in the bud really really quick the truth of the matter is when people are faced with a board game they automatically think of chess and the hardest sell about getting new people to play board games is they feel it's an intelligence test because there's this huge misnomer that being good at chess means you're smart which conversely means if you're bad at chess, you're an idiot, which isn't true at all, but that's how people feel. So when you say, hey, you want to play a board game, a lot of people, whether they realize it or not, feel that you're saying, hey, you want to find out if you're smart or an idiot? So they're really hesitant, reticent to go ahead and play that game. So addressing and allaying those fears is the golden ticket, not just in two rooms and a boom, but any game you play. Like, hey, this is just bullshit. We're just having fun plan on losing the first time, be confused, whatever. Uh, thank you, Greg, for writing in. Uh, if you have a question for us, you can send your, you can direct your questions to podcast at tuesdaynightgames.com and uh, we'll answer them on the show. But I think that's going to wrap up our episode. SPJ. Yes. One question. You recommend World Championship Rush Roulette? You do not recommend World Championship Rush Roulette. I would recommend World Championship Russian Roulette. Woo! <laughs> I just needed it. I needed it from you. I needed to hear that you. That yeah, you loved yeah, it. no, no. Yeah. I uh, I feel like it, it is a replacement to coup right now in my life. Uh, and coup is a little more compl Ooh. or a, a little simpler. But coup is one of the most played games I have in my collection. So to I love coup too. Yeah. So to like have a game that kind of fits that void. Uh, that I can bring out and like teach the same people who I, I did play coup with a million times. Uh, I think that's that's my new plan going forward. And hopefully they like it too. Otherwise, I'll probably hear like, hey, what, can we play coup instead? <laughs> uh, but we'll see. But uh, no, I, I enjoyed World Championship Russian Roulette. But that is our show for you guys. 
Uh, like I said, if you have any questions or anything, uh, podcast at TuesdayNightGames.com. Otherwise, if you want to follow us on Twitter, I am at Dragging a Lake. Sean is at Sean McCoy. Alan is at Alan Girding. Is there an underscore there? No, no underscore. No, A-L-A-N-G-E-R. Ding. Ding, ding, ding. And uh, if you want to stay up to date with uh, Tuesday Night Games and the Twitter, that's going to be at Play T. KG. Otherwise, thank you, gentlemen. I believe this episode is 